I'm Dr. Elizabeth Wynn. I'm a multidimensional psychiatrist. Um, born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. I recently released my first novel, Aloha Vietnam, about a Vietnamese American refugee family uh, settling in Hawaii and dealing with their daughter's bipolar diagnosis and mental illness. Um, I currently live in California, um, Northern California in Davis. And I also, besides working in cross-cultural psychiatry, I do a lot of work with the healing power of water and the natural world. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you especially for reaching out because uh, there are so many things that um, your work, your life uh, intersects with um, what I wanted to talk about. So it was like perfect timing. Great. Me too. Yeah. The most uh, important thing right now in people's mind in Hawaii is um, the Lahaina situation in Maui. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, my heart is heavy with grief to um, to just know about the loss to the fires in, in Lahaina and the Big Island, most mostly in Lahaina on the island of Maui in the recent weeks. Um you know, I'm currently on Oahu visiting my, my mother and family who live on Oahu, so who thankfully were not affected by the fires. But it's just devastating to to see the footage, to know about the loss. And I know that I know that these fires, these extreme weather conditions have been happening all around the world for, for a while now. And it's going to keep happening because of the climate change crisis that all of us on planet earth are living in but when it happens to your own home your own home lands it, it just hits really close and i think that's probably a message that we all need to really feel into is is how close to home do we need to let it get before we start realizing that the planet is our home that that anytime these loss of life and home and habitat and animals happen anywhere on a planet it, it really it really is affecting all of us on our home planet because we're all connected so you know they're still in the in the early phases of of just sifting through the damage trying to still find missing people and it's 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 very um sad you know i have uh talked to people in the last week and there's a lot of people that don't know about this. It's the craziest thing. And so I just wanted to give some context to people who are listening to this podcast uh, that will be released today, um, that the town of Lahaina used to be Hawaii's capital. Uh, and it's a small town of 13,000 people. And I'm sure there's an influx of tourists and, and people that come from out of town but it's it's a small place that the structures were all built by wood i heard mm -hmm. it's a very historic town which is partly what um was its charm is it's just that it was mostly wooden structures that are several hundred years old there's these ancient banyan trees some of which i think have survived the fires thankfully still still of course scarred by it but you know, unlike other, uh, like Waikiki, where there's a lot of like high rises and concrete and glass, um, Lahaina was still a quaint little town with lots of old wooden structures, which is one of the reasons why it burned down so quickly, especially with the hurricane winds that just whipped through and spread the fires so quickly. And there's 13,000 people in that town now without, I mean, it burned everything down. I mean, it's unheard of, right? You know, I it's it's unheard of in, in on Oahu. I mean, on in Hawaii. You know, I'm sure there's been other places that have been equally devastated. Um, entire towns being destroyed by fire or other natural disasters. Um, but yes, the scale is something that you know we haven't seen in a long time. Well, I um I hope that our audience can tune in and find different support links um, throughout the process of, of uh, the rebuilding of Lahaina in the next few weeks and months. 
And I just want to call attention to the situation in Maui and um, the fires are over, but the um, recovery of uh, people who have passed away in the fires is ongoing right now. And uh, reconstruction efforts are probably months away. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kenneth, for, for just bringing attention to, to what's going on there. And I think, um, you know, trying to support those who have been directly affected by the fires is our, our first and foremost priority. And then, and then really taking that opportunity to reflect on how, if even if we are not directly impacted by this incident, how we are still all impacted and how we all can take this opportunity to reflect on our own lives, our own contributions, and, and what, what is happening, what is happening in our planet and what, what we can do to, uh, what we can do about it. There are quite a few Vietnamese families that live on um, the island of Oahu. Uh, Waikiki is the, the, the big city there. How did your family get there? My family came to Honolulu on May 1st, May Day, 1975, um, because my my father had a sister, my father's sister, so my paternal aunt, had married an American who was in the military. Um, and so when, when the news came that, that Saigon was going to fall and, and anyone affiliated with the South would, would need to try to leave uh, my, my, my aunt's husband, my uncle Bruce was able to, to help my family make some quick arrangements to leave, to leave Saigon. And, and we ended up in, in Honolulu in May 1st, 1975. And I often say that our family won the refugee lottery by ending up <laughs> in Honolulu. Um, but there weren't many other, there were, there was a small community, maybe several thousand, but compared to other resettlement communities, um, it was not a major hub of resettlement. People there either knew someone or had sponsorship. So it was definitely a unique, beautiful um, experience growing up in Hawaii with uh, the Vietnamese American refugee uh, community here. Yeah, to say it was uh, a lottery win is like an understatement. If you think about, you know, the, the lives that... Uh, millions of people that were left in, in Vietnam or had traveled to places that were much tougher. Um, but that being said, though, because I think about this, um, was it entirely idyllic and, you know, uh, heavenly as we on the mainland or, you know, other parts of the world would think that a Vietnamese family arriving to Hawaii would have, right? It's probably not as beautiful as you know we we would imagine well i want to answer that saying yes and no because i think like any other ref vietnamese american refugee family there were struggles there were struggles that are you know common to all of us in the diaspora um and common to any immigrant family especially a refugee family trying to just start their lives new in a foreign land with like you know even though my parents and my family were, were privileged enough to, to come over by plane. They still, they had nothing, nothing. We started with nothing. So everything they, they built was, was from the ground up. So it was, it was still challenging, but I would say that I still answer that question that yes, we did win the refugee lottery because every time I come home to Hawaii now, even though I live most of my life in California, there's something about being on the islands that even if, you know, you're struggling with everything, there's something really special about the Hawaiian islands um, that just living here is, is a gift that um, I don't take for granted. And I really feel is a special thing, which is why these, these fires are, are really, you know, just um, heartbreaking. Something I really didn't think about much until I met a, a dear friend of mine, um, Anderson Lay. He's of the Lay family with Pig and Lady and Piggy Smalls in Oahu. Uh, the one thing I didn't think about much was 
until until I met him, I didn't I hadn't been to Hawaii. And once I met him and he runs the Hawaii International Film Festival. And when I got to Hawaii, I didn't realize I, I was completely ignorant to the fact that it's predominantly Asian looking people mm-hmm. on the island. <laughs> but having that physical characteristic that we blend in as Vietnamese people, is there sort of uh, an ease to the fact that there's all these Asians and we blend in or? Yeah. 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 I'd love to answer that. Yeah. It's, I would say, yes, there, there was um, an ease to growing up in a place where as a Vietnamese American, you look like you fit in, you look like a local and, and there isn't that same discrimination against Asians that I feel that other people in my generation and older experienced on the mainland or resettlement places where there was a minority of Asians. But I would say there's also an un, unseen and unspoken um, sort of d- challenge in that too, is that because you look like you fit in, you you, you aren't given any sort of, um, everyone just assumes you you know what you're doing and I, as i feel as i feel like as a vietnamese american refugee uh, family and i write about this in my my book uh the main character one at one point says like everyone thinks i'm local but i'm really not like i have no idea what's going on my parents have no idea what's going on we are not like a fourth fifth generation japanese you know chinese american family in hawaii and so there was both this like ease of like we look the same, so we're not discriminated against, but the internal experience of not fitting in and maybe not even knowing that you need extra help because you don't look like you need extra help was an added challenge. And you must run into plenty of Asian Americans in California. The West Coast has you know, an abundance of community here, uh, Asian American community. And do you ever sort of like hear other people's stories of growing up throughout the country, the, the mainland, and compare it, the difficulties or the ease in which your life uh, was in Hawaii? And and can you share some of that? Because uh, I always find it interesting to be an American speaking English in a place where it's predominantly Asian people. Yeah, you know, I think like you, Kenneth, I just love hearing other people's stories, especially other Vietnamese American families, and because I wanna, I wanna understand how my experience was unique or similar or different than others, and um, I would say that I, coming from Hawaii, growing up Vietnamese American in Hawaii, was uniquely different than Vietnamese Americans that I've talked to in in California when I when I speak to. Um, you know, people I met in college or afterwards, there, there, there's just, and it's so hard to sometimes explain what is different. I think, I think a lot of it is around place. Hawaii is a special place that's very tied to the land. You, you wake up and you always know where the mountains are and you always know where the ocean is just because you can probably see it. It's that small. I feel like when I live in California now and my first time there going to college, I was just so struck by how big it is. Like you could just see the land stretching. And I'm like, which way is the ocean? Which way is the mountain? I was so disoriented because um, those markers of growing up in Hawaii where you could always see the mountains, you can always see the ocean were so uh, grounding in me. And I think every person who grows up on the islands has that without them even being conscious of it, of just like being so rooted to the island itself, the land itself. Um, and in California, I mean, I've lived there now half my life, maybe more than half my life. So it's become a part of me too. And there is a different, unique culture to California. California life, you know, there's just, I don't know what to say about it besides, you know, there's there's lots of retail and strip malls and, you know, there's and, and there's beautiful landscape as well, but there's actually very beautiful landscape, but it's very different than, than Hawaii, which feels very, very like cozy and, and tropical. Recently, I had another guest. Her name is uh, Dr. Vigno. She is a doctor as well as an, a fine artist. And, um, you know, it was like one of the first times I had a doctor and an artist on. And then you reached out as an author and as a doctor. Uh, the intersection of art 
and the medical world is very fascinating to me because it's almost like the way my artist community talks about uh, growing up, we were pressured and it, it feels very binary sometimes. Like our parents were like lawyer, doctor, or artist. But now I'm starting to find out that, hey, there are people in the medical field who are accomplished writers and accomplished artists. And I want to talk about that intersection. I want to talk about what went on in your childhood to keep you on track with the medical track. And then, you know, did you always have this itch to write and become an author? I love this question. And I love that there's, there's more of us now showing that it's not so black and white, um, that even as we, you know, in my family, like many traditional Vietnamese American families, it was like, you're going to become a doctor and a lawyer. And, and I, I just sort of like, I was like, okay, like, let me explore those two and see, see which one fits better. And I, you know, in, interned with a, with a doctor. I'm like, oh, I could see myself doing this. And I, I always wanted to write. I always wanted to be a writer. I have written ever since I got my first journal in fourth grade. And um, I think I wrote like a, a story or a, something, even in elementary school, I just loved writing. But it never even entertained my mind. I, I wasn't one of those rebel childs who was like, I'm gonna fight for this you know, chance to become a writer. I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna do what my parents tell me. And then I'm also gonna just like keep doing this thing that's such a part of me. Um, and I think I went into psychiatry because it's about listening to people's stories and writers are about storytelling. And so there was a natural fit of, oh, I found even within medicine, a place where I can really develop my innate interest in, in storytelling and listening and just being so curious about people's stories and still writing about them. So I've always wanted to write a book. Um, and then I wanted to share a story of what it was like to grow up Vietnamese American in Hawaii. And I wanted to share, you know, what a family story, what a family's journey is navigating through mental illness. There was mental illness in my own family. I sit with families all the time navigating mental illness. These are stories that I felt wanted to be brought to awareness so people can really um, hear them and share them and learn from them. Um, and I would have to say that even though I'm both. I'm, I'm a doctor and I, I am a writer. I, I still do feel like the pool, like I want to be more creative. I want to have more creative time to paint, to really just create. And and it, it, there is still this dichotomy of like, you know, you, you kind of have to have a foot in both worlds. If I, so I'm still navigating it, is what I'm saying. My, my suspicion uh, for humanity is that given a choice to do art and be creative, or do something high powered like being a lawyer or being a businessman or i feel like most of us would choose the creative path i don't know it just seems much more liberating and much more <laughs> you know uh, you, you feel alive when you're doing things that are you know um, creative uh, it just feels more aligned with like our angel side if if you will i don't know how to explain that well, I think all humans are creative and to be healthy, we need to be tending to nurturing and expressing our creative side. I think, I personally believe that if humanity is to make it through this climate change crisis and live sustainably on our planet, that we're going to need to bring creativity into those high powered industries of business, finance, education, or just all the systems, healthcare, because right now, um, people feel like they have to choose one or the other. So they either have to, you know, like, do what the system tells them to do and, and make a good living, or they can really, you know, nurture their creativity and be their unique talents and express what their genius. And the answer is, we actually need all of that in these industries. We need more creativity in education, healthcare, business, every indicator industry needs people actually doing their unique creative selves and and i believe that's what's really going to get us out of this mess is not this binary 
yeah. you got to choose either the old way or the or being true to yourself. Like, can you be true to yourself and make a living in a way that's good for everyone? Like, I think that's our ch- task. <laughs> it, it's hard because there's confines to a field like the medical profession, being a doctor. <laughs> it's not like, you know, I want to hand off my body to somebody who's only doing like four <laughs> to eight hours a day in, me- in the medical field. I want somebody who's gone through... 18 hours and and heavy rotations in their in their hospitals right I, there's a reason why this exists or, or um people who are specialists who dedicate their lives to really figuring out a cancer or something like that so i i, I find it hard to you know to, to to agree that it's you know um you can't do both almost and there are people who are just dedicated solely to the fields that they're dedicating their lives to but for the most part it's like society is set up this way and i think what you're saying about financiers that need to get creative to to help the climate change problem i i could see that but there's fields certainly like um cancer doctors again going back to that i would i would hope that those men and women are really focused in that <laughs> that field no, I hear you. I hear you. That you know, there, there's a surgeon that's going to operate on me. Yeah. I want that surgeon to like be spending time in the OR, and yeah. there's someone flying my plane. Um, but I, I want to yeah. uh, go into uh, your journey um, into why you picked psychiatry. But before we get to that, and please remind me because my mind jumps all over the place when when I'm sitting in front of people. Uh, I want to know your thoughts, and this might be controversial, and I don't know if how uncomfortable it is for you to talk about it, but psychiatry and pharmaceuticals, mm. as a practicing psychiatrist, do you think this has all gotten out of hand? Can we work? Okay, good. I'm seeing you nod your head. Okay. Yeah, please, please go. No. Yeah, I've gone through my own personal journey as a psychiatrist you know, as a diagnoser, as a prescriber. And then now I, I say I'm a multidimensional psychiatrist because I, I've i come to realize that, that medicine, psychiatric medicines, where they're at, um, do have a role, do have a role in, in alleviating suffering for people and, and sometimes managing crises and symptoms. But there was a there, it has completely gotten out of control how, how psychiatry, modern psychiatry, the whole system around around you know diagnosis and, and then you know just just throwing on medications and trying medications to to alleviate symptoms um and, and there was a time when i actually was thinking like do i you know walk away from psychiatry because i just can't practice like this this goes against my own ethical moral views of do no harm like i am being like my profession tells me like, this is what I should do. And I don't feel like I'm doing good. I feel like I'm doing harm, but I have found my way. I have found my way through it. I think partly by trying to do what I just said earlier, which is trying to bring my unique creative self into my practice of psychiatry. So I'm bringing in my spirituality. I'm bringing in my connection to water and the natural world as other healing modalities in the room alongside my, my prescription pad and, and medication toolbox, which at times can be very useful for people on their journeys. What I often tell people is that us humans, we've gotten ourselves into a really big mess. And so sometimes to, to get out of that mess, you need to use kind of the same sort of like powerful medicines and tools to get you out of it. So some of the me- mental illnesses we see these days are so sort of downstream imbalances of, of, of human health and wellness. And, and sometimes because we've gone so far off that downstream, you need actually heavy hitting medications to kind of start bringing things back into balance. So it's like, if you've got cancer, you need sometimes really, you know, really strong medications to kind of, to fight that. Same with, with mental illness that sometimes when things are so severely out of balance, we do need powerful medications to, 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 to get things back into balance. But, but bigger picture, you know, wellness focused, uh, no, I, I don't think these pharmaceutical medications are, are healing by any means. I think they are a crutch and a tool to, to, to 
for a time being to as someone's on their healing journey. One of my good friends um, is an 80-year-old psychiatrist, and we've had many lunches to talk about the pharmaceutical industry and how destructive it is. And I wonder where the line is actually drawn. And I don't mean in your mind, but the line of, um, you know, it just keeps getting pushed back or forward, depending on how you're looking at it, with the money that comes from the pharmaceutical companies. And it just doesn't feel like it's ever going to go back to where it was 10 years or 20 years ago, because the pharmaceutical companies are so powerful. And it just seems like it is a dire situation for Americans all across the country. Is this going to yeah. ever improve? I think things are going to continue to get worse everywhere across the board <laughs> until they get better. And I think it's not just psychiatry. I think it's you look at any field in medicine, it's, it's the same thing. Humans allow themselves to get really out of balance and really sick before they decide, okay, I need to do something for my health. I need to, you know, take better care of myself. I need to eat better foods. I need to move my body. I need to really focus on health and wellness. So it's the pharmaceutical industry is definitely a profit driven machine, but it also perfectly fits into the human psychology of where we're at. The only reason the pharmaceutical industry is so successful because most humans are lazy. Most humans don't really want to do the hard work it takes to be healthy. So they, they would rather just continue all their unhealthy habits until they are in need of some major intervention. And then they're like, all right, give me a pill because you know I really can't change my lifestyle. I mean, I'm not, this is like really gross characterization. You know, there obviously are people who, who are, you know, doing the lifestyle changes and, and really seeing the bigger picture. But the, the main reason that the, med the pharmaceutical industry has such a hold on us humans is because most of us aren't willing to do the hard work to, to change our own habits, our own lifestyle, our own being aware of everything that we're doing to ourselves is causing, you know, the heart conditions, the cancer, the mental illness. Um, I mean, it's all multifactorial. No one, no one is yeah. doing one thing to cause that. But I think we, we humans are just as responsible for, for saying, give us the easy way out. Give us the pill. Society has become so complex. Uh, but when I think about the Vietnamese culture and the old country, the place that our parents come from, uh, both mentally and physically, I think of more simpler times. And I think that um, they were not uh, understanding of mental health and they didn't, even to this day, I think there's a major shortage of psychiatric uh, services or psychological services in Vietnam. Uh, but today, do you work with Vietnamese families uh, within psychiatry or psychology and therapy? Uh, and what's your read on the landscape? Yeah, so I, I used to work at a Asian Pacific Community Counseling, which is a community mental health organization that serves the Asian American Pacific Islander community across, you know, all, all ethnicities and cultures. So not just Vietnamese, but all AAPIs. And I worked there for seven years and I found it so, it was so meaningful because I felt like this is really what, you know, I'm uniquely designed for. I can speak the language. I know the culture. I can really help to translate the Western view into, you know, helping these parents, these families accept treatment. And then, um, as with so many nonprofits, it, it became, there became just issues. There became issues with leadership, with finance, and, and all these nonprofits doing this work, I feel, are just 
barely scraping by always like this always becomes this always seems like a fringe a fringe uh cause it never gains quite enough momentum to become like yes like we need this is this shouldn't be like people working overtime and and like taking money out of their own pockets to like help families like there just was not enough support there was not enough community support and resources to to maintain this as a sustainable um system and and so you know i i you know i, I just couldn't continue working in this way because the leadership and the community support didn't seem like a sort of a t airtight enough um system to continue to provide care so so i i currently have a private practice where i you know work with my clients in a way where i feel like i can really provide the care to them um and i, I say that it still weighs heavy on my mind though because i know that there's still so many underserved AAPI families who are who are struggling with mental illness of the most severe type and cross-cultural barriers um, to them receiving services is, is still there like we still haven't broken through that yet yeah it's you know I sometimes I'm in the community and I, I see like well when I think about this stuff it's like visually we can see when somebody breaks their arm they're in a cast or they're you know they're, they're, they're bandaged up or they get a cut and, you know, we could see the physical math, uh, machinations of the wound, yeah. the, the injury, but you could also, you know, as a professional, I'm sure you could probably sit with a few people and you can see, holy shit, you are broken and you, I could see the mental bandages or the, 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 the trauma that, but in the Vietnamese community, it's like there's a lot of us that are walking around like that, that are completely because when I talk about mental health with my mom, she's like, what? You call that mental like that's a mental illness to you like that? That's just a really messed up person. That's just a really bad person. I go to no, her no, mom. That person was hurt somewhere. That person down the line early on in their life, when they were like five years old, some, something happened for that person to turn up usually. Right. I mean, and it just seems to happen a lot that we just don't really see in the Vietnamese community. Um, but has that improved? I would say it has improved. Like I definitely, you know, see the next generation. I'm a child psychiatrist. So I see children and, and young adults and college age students, as well as, you know, adults and seniors. So I really see this multi-generational, lifespan of what the generations have gone through you know like my grandmother's generation who have mostly like are have passed on or, or you know are, are nearing that my my parents generation who have also like in that passing on you know you know i'm i'm in my 40s to kind of just to place myself and then my generation who is you know i was born and raised in america you know the one the one and a half the two second generation and our children. And I, I really do see that there has been, you know, a transformation of the trauma that, that has, that our people have gone through. There is like a, an evolution in each generation of the trauma and how it affects each generation. Um, I think in terms of water a lot. So I, I think that, like there has been a dilution. There has been a dilution of the trauma with with each generation. Um, and I, I'm I, I'm hopeful that that will continue along. Not not hopefully not with a dilution of of the the values and and the unique culture that makes us Vietnamese, but with this just sort of evolution of our evolution as a species, not just for Vietnamese, but for humans. I think if you, as Vietnamese Americans, we're talking specifically about Vietnamese, but I sit with other ethnic groups from their own lineages of trauma. And again, there's that parallel process of 
enlightening of the trauma in each generation across all race and ethnicities. Um, that I think is a story of of the human evolution that that we've all we've all of us all humans right now we have come from hardship and challenge and and trauma mostly inflicted by ourselves on each other most of the trauma has been human inflicted and, and so we're still learning from that and, and each generation I I think is is improving. As you're listening to these stories of trauma or you're sitting in rooms where kids, your child psychiatrist, and you're hearing all of this like tough things to that, that are happening, where do you have a support system to release all of that destructive energy? The main thing that comes to mind as soon as you asked that was Mother Earth. Is Mother Earth and that's where I, I personally have a practice of really using my relationship to the natural world as a place for me to reground and rebalance and release. And that's something that I teach my clients to do as well because it's something that's available to us all the time, all, always. What What is... What is scary is that we are destroying our natural habitats so quickly that you know you don't when you're feeling like, like you just need a break from life going to a concrete strip mall is not going to provide that same release as it is going to like a, a, a park even just a simple city park with some open green space there is there is a difference in your sense of of peace and connectedness and, and calm that you can achieve when you can really reconnect to the natural world. So that's, that's one place that I, I use as a support. And then of course, also just like my own self care with, you know, my own, you know, family and friends and, and my own wellness practices. Where did you learn this holistic side um, because I can imagine going through the Western training, it probably is not acknowledged or even perhaps frowned upon. When did you start to incorporate it and what inspired that incorporation? Yeah, so I think the first thing you asked was, when did I start feeling that? And I felt that as a young child in Hawaii. I think, you know, us, us Vietnamese are so superstitious about, you know, karma and soul and destiny and so i was like there's a reason i'm here in hawaii there's a reason i was born here in hawaii i always felt this really strong connection to to the ocean especially in hawaii even as a young child i remember just like always if i was struggling with something i would just go to look at the water go into the ocean and it felt like it was a natural cleanser a natural filter that just cleaned and cleared everything. So as a young child, that was where I felt it from the beginning. But then there was a long period of going through just the traditional medical training system for over a decade where it wasn't about that at all. It was just about learning traditional Western models of, of medications and treatment. And, and then, you know, after I graduated and, be, and started developing my own practice, I just felt this this conflict inside me again of like, do no harm. And I just felt like, I feel like I'm not really serving my patients by just treating them the way I was taught. I really feel like I'm not really facilitating their wellness. So I kind of just step-by-step step started honoring my own soul's path by bringing back what I I found and experienced to be helpful and in, in really helping people feel feel well again people who are listening can't really see the way you move your hands and close your eyes <laughs> you know but that was like one of the first things i picked up on um are you visualizing certain things certain ways of describing things to me or to the people that you're seeing um you it just reminds me of you being in in meditation or prayer when you're talking i mean it's a lot uh of of this um and i picked up on it because um i can see 
that it's almost like you're forming thoughts, but in a way that you're tapping into um, a different source. Is that, uh, can you talk about that at all? Absolutely. I, I feel like I close my eyes and do this motion a lot when I'm channeling. And I'm just like channeling energy or words that want to be expressed through me, but that I'm not really the one trying to think about how to answer the question. I'm, I'm really just allowing what wants to be expressed through me to come through me. And that's really how I view my healing work as well. When I sit with a client, a patient in the room, it's like, it's like I open this energy for us to really access healing. And if, if someone wants healing and I'm like, we're here for healing, whatever is healing. Healing doesn't come from me. I tell people healing doesn't come from me and it, it doesn't necessarily come from you either. It's like this, this energy that will come in and reach those places that want to be healed from this ultimate source, wherever that ultimate source is, this ultimate source of creation that wants things to be harmonized as, um, you know, the cycles on the earth, things want to be in harmony. And if we open the space and allow that to rebalance and reharmonize, it will. So if, if you're open to opening that space within yourself, and I'm open to, to letting that energy come through the space we hold together, that energy will just come through and help heal, which means really to help rebalance, reharmonize, open up things that that just need to happen in order for for the energy to re rebalance and reharmonize okay first of all i want to just put it out there i hook line and sinker i completely agree with you right i'm just going to put that out there and then i'm going to make a quick left turn hard left turn here into our conversation because your a combination of traditional medicine and what you just said in the last minute about letting energy flow through you uh, reminds me very much of my experience in ayahuasca. And I want to ask you if you've ever had any experience with ayahuasca, with researching it, with learning about it, or any healing techniques that are close and similar using plant medicine. I love plant medicine. So I love that you brought up ayahuasca. I just sat an ayahuasca ceremony for the first time about a year ago. And I've sat maybe in four ceremonies since then. And it is one of the most powerful medicines I have, have received. Um, I work a lot with psilocybin medicine as well. And I also feel like the plant medicines of, of, of psilocybin and ayahuasca, those are the two that I have personal experience with. There's many other plant medicines that I haven't experienced yet, but I'm sure plant medicines from the earth are a part of this um, this ecosystem of our planet that is hurting and that wants to heal. And and these plant medicines are a part of that. They grow from the earth, and they they want to be a part of the healing. For, and us humans are a part of this ecosystem as well. And if we open ourselves to becoming a part of that ecosystem again, connected to that ecosystem that these plant medicines are connected to and have wisdom to, then we open ourselves to, to healing with them and also then becoming a part of the medicine that they are. So we, we, we kind of join them. We kind of join forces with them um, energetically and with our consciousness. So... <laughs> I lost sort of track of the question, but but to, we can we can continue now, to dive further. Yeah, let's dive further because this is awesome. I didn't, you know, obviously don't. Many times I don't do um, deep dives before I go into conversation. I um, trust that there's intersections in things I want to talk about, and then we we start. But then when I start reading the people that are sitting in front of me. I start to have questions that, you know, they fit similar patterns of my experience, right? <laughs> and so the way you move reminded me very much of the, you know, my um, Mike's wife is is in that space. She's probably done 
many ayahuasca uh, ceremonies. Uh, she goes to probably three or four a year for the last few years. So um, I'm attuned to the vibration of people who attend ceremony. So that's what I was feeling. So I came for Aloha Vietnam, for the book, for the medical, <laughs> these intersections, Maui. But here we are. And this is so important. Yeah. This is so important to talk about. This is so important. This is. This is super important. I mean, this is probably the, I don't know, the universe saying, hey, uh, we get that there's these intersections, but this is the main road right here. And um, and the reason I say that is because you are Western trained and your peers, your world in the Western side uh, probably is now opening up to psilocybin, to ayahuasca, to all of these things that we can't see and identify and have very little research on. Where do you stand in terms of the spectrum of all the way west, all the way east? How do we mitigate and make sense of these practices? Yeah, I'm so glad we're here because I also feel like this is where we're supposed to be. And I would say we are supposed to stand firmly rooted in ourselves on feet on the ground on planet earth, really honoring our truth. So, you know, when you say fully East or fully West, those again, external systems and paradigms that, that have been formulated by other people about what is East and what is West. But I would say that my answer to that question is that everyone, if they stand firmly rooted in themselves, connected to the earth, honoring their unique heritage, what is true for them, that is going to be the healing for each individual and the healing for communities and for our planet. And so I was just sitting in ceremony, psilocybin ceremony last weekend, when I got such the strong message that that I am in service to, to, to the planet Earth, to Mother Earth, and to, to the psilocybin medicine, um, and I'm going to do whatever it asks of me just to, to serve my role. And I don't really even know what fully that role is. I know that I'm supposed to hear it. It led me to having this conversation with you and talking about... You know, this plant medicine, we talked about where where is the mental health for 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 our Vietnamese American community, for our AAPI community, for for our mental health communities. And and plant medicine, even though it's been practiced by indigenous cultures for thousands of years, is only beginning to be opened into the Western model of mental health treatment so it's an infancy infancy stages and um i think there's a really powerful opportunity for, for a lot of this healing for all this trauma this ancestral healing so i think ayahuasca and psilocybin are such powerful medicines for ancestral collective generational trauma and healing but they, we're, we're still trying to figure out how to actually deliver that and receive that with with integrity, so that it just so that it doesn't become just another pharmaceutical grab, like the pharmaceutical companies now. So this it, is a really interesting dynamic time to just be on planet Earth, figuring all this stuff out. Do you ever talk to your family or your Vietnamese contacts? about this because it's so left field for you know i just started to expose my mom you know a few years ago and you know she's opening up and she's uh being open to the conversation but what's your experience i have not talked to my immediate family about uh psychedelics yet I, my, my pulse is that they just wouldn't really be they wouldn't really know what i'm talking about really um I belong to several, you know, BIPOC communities that are, you know, practitioners that are, are trying to see how to, to bring this to our communities. And I would say there's still so much, there's still a lot of shadow work being done in the psychedelic 
community, which is just necessary. Um, when I say shadow work, I mean that humans have work that we all need to look at, like stuff within ourselves and each other. And you can't bypass that work. So even if you all of a sudden have the sacred medicine that you're like, wow, like this could really be so helpful because the fact that humans are <laughs> involved in it and the whole distribution of it, there's all this human shadow work around capitalism and profit and power and privilege and, and competition. Everything that humans struggle with in our family lives and our personal lives shows up in every space we enter. And it's showing up in the psychedelic field as well. So even though you have these sacred medicines, these pure sacred medicines, they are not immune to human contamination with our consciousness and our problems. So I would say in the psychedelic space, we are actively, from my experience, still working through human shadow work, which is going to be necessary in order for us to be as clear and pure vessels for this medicine as the medicine itself is. That's the beauty of the medicine itself. Medicine itself is a pure medicine, but once it enters through a human channel, either as the person to, to, to hold the ceremony space, to deliver it, it becomes contaminated by human consciousness and human shadow. And so um, that's, you know, that's where I feel like the field is still at. Yeah. And, and I have a, kind of a slightly different perspective about um, plant medicine sometimes when I think about uh, mushrooms and, and ayahuasca, I feel like they're the key to the gym, like a gym mm. weights, right? You can get the keys to unlock the room to go into, but there's a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of conditioning and a lot of work that you have to do once you get inside that gym. It's a simple analogy, but it, it's not like you get into the room and your body works itself out. It, it's you, you don't like work the pectorals or your, your biceps by itself. They're like, they're not going to work on itself. Just because you're in the gym doesn't mean that the work is being done. You have to unlock it. You have to find a way to get into that room. And then once you get into that dimension, the work begins because then you can start processing all of that information that's coming up in the room. And then you can start working out. I love that analogy. I love that analogy of once you get in the gym, you still need to do the work. Like you, um, I will just add though that the beauty of partnering with plant medicine is that there there is a bit of not of a bit there's a lot of surrender yeah that is required it seems a little different than western models of psychotherapy that I've learned which is that you know western psychotherapy is like you know like traditional CBT is like you have homework you have to do or even insight-oriented is like, you kind of have to do this endless processing, which to some extent I have found is, is helpful even in when you have the gym to plant, you have the key to the plant medicine gym, kind of still need to work through our psychological processes and understand yourself. But I feel like as you do it more and more, and it probably is like a progression, but as you do it more and more, you, you realize the surrender piece of, oh, I don't have to work so hard at I, I do it's more about like surrendering and partnering with this process still still does it's a, still a lot of work but it's a different way of doing the work that i think takes a while for people who are um used to a much more action-oriented um model of healing than than plant medicine actually requires and you've been in this world for a year right I've been in the ayahuasca world for a year. I've been in the psychedelic world for maybe about four four years, like right. with, with other psychedelics. Well, um, I'm going to make a request. I'm going to make a request that sometimes next year, um, as you get more into this, that we come back and we have it as a deeper discussion because it does deserve its own episode of talking totally. about this, right? Because we, yes. we just stumbled upon this conversation and we're here really to talk about your book, but I am so, <laughs> I feel so blessed that we got to uh, scratch the surface and uh, perhaps, um, you know, in a few more months or next year, 
we can get back on and and really do a deep dive when you're ready uh, and you feel like you have more um, experience and you have more maybe a development in the legal process of these schedules. Totally. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping up a year-long training program in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and, and you know we're waiting for the legalization process for MDMA and psilocybin to come through in California and federally. It's already legal in, in Colorado and Oregon. So I think in a year, we're gonna, landscape's going to be different. Sounds great to like reconnect, talk specifically maybe about psychedelics for Vietnamese Americans and for Asian Americans. I would love to do that. Awesome. Awesome. So let's get into Aloha Vietnam. What is up with that title and what is the content? What's the story? How did it all come to life? So Aloha Vietnam is a novel. It's the story of a Vietnamese American refugee family that ends up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and it follows their journey just of settling and resettling in the new land. And then their, their adolescent daughter develops symptoms and of, of a mental health condition and is diagnosed with bipolar disorder in her senior year of high school. And it follows the family's journey of trying to navigate mental health and, and treatment and what it means for, for, for the daughter, what it means for the family. And it kind of just follows that story. Um, Aloha Vietnam, the title itself I chose because I think one of the main themes of this story is around how unprocessed loss and grief shows up in, 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 in our families and doesn't necessarily cause mental illness, but can be a, a big contributor to mental health symptoms and, and, and mental illness. And so aloha in Hawaii means, in the Hawaiian language, means both hello, means goodbye, and it also means love. And for the story that's told alternatingly between the points of view of of the mother swan and, and the daughter Aang, it really is this 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 theme of, of how the mother swan and many of our parents' generation they didn't really felt they didn't really feel like they had a proper chance to say goodbye to Vietnam. It all happened so quickly for some people. Like they, they, we just had to leave, or even you know if, even if it, even if it was years later, it was never really a proper goodbye. We didn't really get to say goodbye to Vietnam. And I feel like that experience really is heavy, heavy in our diaspora of, of this unspoken grief of not being able to properly say goodbye to this motherland we love so much. At the same time, immediately be th being thrown into starting a new life and just like, just starting over. So at the same time, we didn't get to say goodbye to our motherland. We didn't really have a proper like welcoming and hello to our new life as well. It was kind of just like, mm. just go. And, and all of this unprocessed stuff ends up in, in our family histories, in our, in our emotions, in our unspoken grief. And, and so aloha means both hello, it means goodbye, but it also speaks to the love. And I feel like love is the highest healing energy that really allows us to go back even now even now almost 50 years later to heal to heal whatever still needs to be healed from these experiences you know it's all we all have carried on there's no doubt that vietnamese are resilient people we've all carried on but there's still areas that need to be healed and and this book was meant to be a message a vessel for healing for it to speak to all those areas, even though it's one family story, it was really meant to touch Vietnamese people everywhere and to touch them in places where they might, might still need some opening and healing and understanding, especially between the generations. And readers who want to find the book, where can they find it? They can find it, you know, anywhere books are sold, independent bookstores, it's on Amazon. Um, but, you know, anywhere you buy your books, you can buy it online. Elizabeth, thank you so much today. As I said, you know, came for the Hawaii story. I came for your medical insights and the intersection of these topics, but um, something new was born out of the conversation, which is the future of healing uh, as it relates to plant medicine. Uh, thank you for opening up and 
really diving into it. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Thank you. I look forward to speaking to you again soon, too. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.